following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. All right. We are on our last Sunday of 2 Peter. So I'm just going to read the passage. This is 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 14 and going through verse 18. And what Peter has to say here as kind of his final words in this letter are going to be what we're talking about this morning. So my friends... While we wait for the day of the Lord, work hard to live in peace without flaw or blemish, and look at the patience of our Lord as your salvation. Our dearly loved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, has written about this. He says essentially the same in all of his letters, although uneducated and unstable readers misinterpret the difficult passages just as they always misread scripture to their spiritual ruin. So hear my final words, my friends. Now that I have warned you about what's ahead, keep your guard and don't let unprincipled people pull you away from the sure ground of the truth with their lies and misunderstandings. Instead, grow in grace and in the true knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus, the anointed to whom be glory now and until the coming of the new age. Amen. So we've been talking for a number of weeks that Peter makes a big deal about true teachers and false teachers, about the true lives and false lives that go with it, about true, false, true prophets and false prophets. A lot of Second Peter has been this warning to the church, be very, very careful who you listen to. Some people are coming and accurately passing on the message of the gospel that was given to them. Some are not. And as he says here, Paul is often misunderstood. Uneducated and unstable readers will misinterpret passages, and when they do, it's to their spiritual ruin. And then he says, find that sure ground of truth. So because Peter finishes his second letter in this fashion, I want to focus on this this morning, just about principles of Bible study that will help us not to be uneducated and unstable readers, because I don't want us to go to spiritual ruin. I want us to find the truth of the gospel that we can build our lives on. So what I have to offer today is something that I actually teach when I'm in Costa Rica with the students there, and I take like three days sometimes to walk through what we're going to do in 30 Four minutes. So if you picked up notes, I am not going to be covering everything that's in your packet. Some of that is just extra information for you. If you haven't picked up notes, I would encourage you to. The notes are gone. Um, Sheila, can I tap you on the shoulder to go make a few more? Uh, or you can tap someone else. It doesn't matter. But you get to start it. Uh, We'll make sure there's some more ready, not because what I have to say is amazing, but because what I have compiled is a time-honored way of understanding and reading Scripture that I think will be helpful for you. The Bible congratulates people who test what they're told. The Bible talks about this group in Berea, and they're encouraged, well, all of us are encouraged, be like Bereans. When someone teaches you something, go to the Scriptures and make sure what you're being taught is true. So part of what you're going to see here this morning is how I go to the scriptures to try to be confident that what I give to you is truth, but I also want to encourage you, please don't ever view me as the kind of guy where I stand up here and I say something and then you just go home and take it with no thought of your own. That's not the way it's intended to work in the kingdom of God. You are meant to hear what I say, go home, test it, read the Bible for yourself, all right? So... Here we go. This is going to kind of be a teaching morning. I'm just giving you principles. 
But like I said, I think they're important ones. So first of all, when you read the Bible, you have to know the genre. The Bible is written in a lot of different ways. Typically now, if we go somewhere and get a book, that book is all of one thing, like it's fiction or it's Amish romances or it's a cookbook or it's something like that. Because there's a lot of different books in the Bible and a lot of different writers, you're going to see a lot of different ways in which the Bible is written in terms of genre and knowing the difference is important. So there's history, which is a purposeful presentation of facts. It's real people, real places, real events. There's what we call law text. When you read Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, in that area of the Bible, and you'll see different laws. Some of them are moral, like don't kill people. Some are ceremonial, wash your hands. Some are hygienic. If someone's a leper, you have to quarantine them. Some of them are civil. You forgive debts every seven years if you lived in, uh, in the Old Testament times. There's wisdom literature, which is just wise or insightful sayings about general principles of life. This is Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and perhaps some of the law texts as well. There's poetry, like the book of Psalms, and then scattered throughout quite a bit of the Bible. Keep in mind, poetic language is very symbolic. The Psalms say that God protects us within his feathers and his wings. We don't build theology out of that to assign chickenhood to God. We recognize the writer is saying something very important and true, but with a flowery kind of message. In fact, we were talking about this, I think it was last week in Message Plus, um, Emily had made the point that reading the Psalms is often like reading a journal more than a manual. It often is just a reflection of what David was thinking and feeling, and sometimes what David was thinking and feeling wasn't always great. But God inspired the gathering and the compilation of that so we could see what an honest struggle with life looked like. There's prophetic writing. Some of this is prediction of the future. Most of it's just an analysis of how God's people are doing in the sight of God. There's war texts, which are a particular way of reading conquest. When you read about the Israelites moving into the land of Canaan, that's a unique style of writing. We could talk about that more in Message Plus if you're interested. There's apocalyptic literature, the book of Revelation, parts of the book of Daniel. These are intended to be books that are written to people in distress to give them hope. These started in the, what's called the intertestamental times between the Old Testament and New Testament, or at least that's when they really started to flourish. They're full of crazy symbols and imagery and all kinds of stuff that for us, the modern reader, can be really weird, like, why is there a beast with 10 heads coming out of the ocean? But to go back into that context, and we'll get to it later, for the original audience, it was giving them a significant message of hope. There's romance, like Song of Solomon and Ruth, though there are no Amish in the Bible, so. There's epistles, which are letters, like we've been reading from 2 Peter. Most of the New Testament are letters, and it's just personal communication. It's on theology. It's on church life. It's on church discipline. And there's parables. Jesus told a lot of these. They're just stories to illustrate a point. So the first thing to know is when you're reading the Bible, what genre is this? I'll get to later some resources and help, help you figure this out. The second is to know the purpose, because the Bible does at least two things. This list probably could have been longer. I'll give you two basic ones. Sometimes the Bible is prescriptive, just like you go to a doctor and they give you a prescription for what ails you. Sometimes the Bible is prescriptive. It'll say, do this or don't do that. Believe this or don't believe that for your health. Other times, the Bible is simply descriptive. It's just telling you what happened. And it's not necessarily meant for us to take away a particular 
um, direction from that. It might just be teaching us about what life looks like. So prescriptive, the Sermon on the Mount is a classic example. Jesus going, you have heard it said, I'm saying this. This is the belief, this is the way it looks in your life. He wants people to leave with their life changed in a particular way. When we get to the book of Revelation, which is coming up at some point before too long, there's seven churches that receive letters. They are often telling them, this is something that you need to do. For descriptive examples, one of the more disturbing stories in the Old Testament occurs in Judges 11, where a guy named Jephthah, before he goes into battle, he tells God, if I win this, I'll sacrifice the first thing I see when I get home. And he wins the battle, and the first thing he sees when he gets home is his daughter, so he sacrifices her. God did not tell him to do that. That is not a story that suggests when we go into a battle, we ought to offer one of our children, potentially, if we win. That's actually a story meant to highlight what it looks like when you get horribly wrong what God might expect of you. So it's not a prescription on what we ought to do. It's a description of what life looks like outside of the umbrella of God's uh, way of living. Uh, John the Baptist confronting Herod and getting beheaded. The Bible doesn't offer that as a teaching for what we ought to do. It simply describes it. It says this is what happened to John the Baptist. Uh, And in some ways, I think that story might be meant to be read as a cautionary tale that perhaps John the Baptist did not exercise the best wisdom. But it's not a prescription to us for what ails us. Now, some passages can be both, but they might not be. So as you're reading Scripture, one of the things to wrestle with is, as I read this, is this simply a description of life? And I might be able to take practical lessons away from it, but it's not telling me something to do. Or is this a prescription? There is something that's sick in the world and that is sick in me, and the Bible is offering me a solution for this. The next thing is to know the context, which is simply figuring out what the original author was trying to say and what the original audience heard. I'll give you two quotes. The first is from John Walton, who says, language assumes a culture, it operates in a culture, It serves a culture and is designed to communicate into the framework of a culture. We must translate the culture as well as the language if we hope to understand the text fully. A book I read a couple years ago called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, the authors there note, we can easily forget that Scripture is a foreign land and that reading Scripture is a cross-cultural experience. I've had some interesting scenarios take place in Costa Rica, even just to go that close geographically to talk about how language can mean different things is fascinating. And I'll often find like just in the course of having what I say translated, we have to go back and figure out how to say it again because something's not quite working. And English and Spanish are sister languages. We're both living here in the 21st century. We're not that far away globally. Now we try to imagine going back 2,000 years to another section of the world and we recognize that the process of translation is an important one. So think of it this way. I'm going to show you a picture here on the screen of some stairs with water flowing down it. Think of it as meaning always flows from the top. So when God gave revelation, he gave revelation to people who were situated in a particular culture. The people in that culture now, they write the Bible. In that Bible are different books, and those books are different sections, and there's different chapters, and then there's paragraphs, and there's verses, and then there's individual words, and many times... The, the meaning of the individual word can only be understood if you have some idea of what the culture was doing with that word. 
So if you just think of the idea that meaning always flows from the top down, if we take just one word and try to build something significant out of that one word, odds are it's going to be problematic because it's part of the bigger picture. That's also the danger of taking one verse at a time. It can be the danger of one paragraph. You know what I'm saying? Everything's part of a bigger picture. A couple months ago, I think we did two sermons on a row on the big picture of Scripture that's intended just to give you kind of the the starting place at the top because the meaning flows from the top down, from the Bible to the verse, not the other way around. If you come to Message Plus, we will go through some examples I have in your notes. We're not going to go through them at this point. This is also an activity I do with the students over there. Just to look at, most of them are verses that you've probably heard, but you probably haven't usually heard the paragraph or heard the entire chapter or seen it in its context. So if you come to Message Plus, we're going to walk through some of these just for the process of interpreting and translating well. There's a particular element of Scripture that's caught my eye lately, and that has to do with numbers. Not the book of numbers, but actual numbers. Now, I am not a fan of Bible codes. I'll just be straight up. I think what God wanted to tell us, he told us plainly in Scripture. When I talk about the importance of numbers, these were not hidden messages to the original audience. Their way of writing was one that when they used certain numbers, there was a message that went with it. So once again, the writing is situated in a culture, and the culture gave it meaning, especially the Jewish culture. They loved to use numbers to convey meaning that was beyond just the meaning of the actual number itself. Like if you're going to see the number three, it often means more than just one, two, three. There's a message that comes with it. It's very hard for me to think of an equivalent in our culture. And I'm not going to take time out to try to think about it again right now. But we just don't write that way. We're much more literal as we write. So I want to give you a couple examples just because I want you to understand how this translation, how this going back into the Bible as a foreign land where we have to really do the hard work of figuring out what's being explained to us works. So the first one is is one that just recently has come to my attention. How often in the Bible... It is not the first person or the first thing or the first event that's the one that God uses. It's the second, which seems a little insignificant to us. But if you realize in biblical times, the firstborn was the one who was important. The first was constantly the thing that the world said the first matters. And as you go through Scripture, you'll see over and over and over, uh, in some ways, God, sometimes subtly and other times not so subtly, saying, actually, I'm going to upend this, this human way of viewing what gives something value or worth or dignity or priority in life. Kingdom of God's different. So you see things like this. Starting in Genesis, uh, the animals were created first on day six, but the animals weren't important. It was the second part of the creation, which was humanity. It's not the first Eden that is important to us. It's the second Eden, which is the new heaven and new earth. It wasn't Cain. It was Abel. It wasn't Esau. It was Jacob. It wasn't Saul. It was David. It wasn't Ruth's first husband. It was her second husband. It wasn't Joseph's first court appearance. He was jailed. It was his second time in the court that was important. It wasn't Moses' first attempt to free the people where he killed the Egyptian. It was his second. It wasn't the first leader out of Egypt who took people to the promised land. It was the second 
second. It was not the first Adam or the first Abraham or the first David or Moses or Noah. It's the second, and that is Jesus, who is the ultimate in all of those. It's not the first sacrificial system which involved animals. It's the second which involved the cross. It's not the first lamb at Passover. It's the second lamb who is Jesus who takes away the sin of the world. It's not the first birth, the physical birth that matters. It's the second birth which is spiritual. It's not the first Jerusalem. It's the new Jerusalem. It's not the first tree in the garden. It's the tree on the hill. And then there's another tree in the book of Revelation. All right, that's my whole list. That was a lot. Are you getting the pattern? Over and over in Scripture, this isn't an accidental thing. It is giving a countercultural view to the priorities of the world, and God is saying, oh no, in my kingdom, things work differently. That which the world might discount, I value. Some other specific numbers are interesting. Some of them you've probably heard of, the number six, because we hear the, the word 666. So six is often the number of humans and beasts, which were both created on the sixth day, going back to Genesis once again. And when you see uh, man and beast, a phrase that's often paired together in Scripture, by the way, you're just talking about this is kind of the sinful, fallen, dirt part of humanity, so to speak. When you get to 666 in the book of Revelation, I don't think it's intended to be a hidden code where we decipher someone's name, Ronald Wilson Reagan. I still remember this was supposed to be the Antichrist because each of the Ronald, Wilson, Reagan, they each had six. It was also supposed to be Mussolini, and we go through all these things throughout history. I think those miss the point of the writers in the Jewish context. He's just saying what will go against God is the fallen part of humanity. And as history rolls on, you will see this arising of this pushback against the things of God, and it will be focused on the things of man instead. The number seven is the number of completion, or perhaps the number of perfection. If you pick up your notes, there's a huge list of sevens. I couldn't fit them all on the screen because you wouldn't be able to read them. But it starts in Genesis. On the seventh day, God rested. There's seven days of creation and days of the week. There's seven covenants with humanity. There's seven days and seven times around Jericho. Uh, you wash in the Jordan seven times when you have leprosy. There's seven pairs of clean animals on the ark. There's seven stems on the tabernacle's lampstand. There's seven qualities of the Messiah in Isaiah 11. Matthew's genealogy of Jesus has six sets of seven generations, which puts Jesus as number one in the seventh seven. Luke has 77 generations from Abraham. There are seven signs in John's gospel and seven things the Lord hates in Proverbs and seven parables in Matthew 13. It's seven woes in Matthew 23. It's 70 weeks of prophecy and you forgive people 70 times seven. And then Revelation is just thick with sevens. So when you encounter the number seven in the Bible, it may well mean an actual seven. But don't be surprised if it's just trying to send a message that to the original audience, they weren't so concerned about if it was this many. They were looking at what is being conveyed by the use of this particular symbolic number. And like I said, it doesn't mean there weren't this many. It just means there was a message that went with it that was bigger than that. The number 10 is a number that often signifies just the fullness or the entirety of something. 
There's 10 generations from Adam to Noah and then from Noah to Abraham. There's 10 plagues. There's 10 commandments. Jesus used the number 10 a lot in his parables. The beasts from Daniel and Revelation have 10 horns. In Revelation, you'll suffer tribulation for 10 days. Once again, it may be that that's this many literally, but don't forget the writers are intending to convey a message that is broader than that and may at times simply use those numbers as a shorthand way of saying this is the fullness or the entirety of something. The number 40 is a time of testing in the Bible. It rained for 40 days and nights. Moses was 40 years in Egypt. The children of Israel were 40 years in the desert. Jonah warned Nineveh for 40 days. Jesus was tested in the wilderness for 40 days. It's also the number of days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. All right, that's enough about numbers. I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by this right now because it reminds me that there are themes throughout the Bible that are easy for us to miss just because we're reading with 21st century Western eyes a document that was a Middle Eastern first century document or older if you get back into the Old Testament. And once again, I'm not trying to give you tricks. I'm, I'm trying to show simply that the writers had more going on that we realized, and what they wrote for them was loaded with some very obvious meaning that for us may be a little harder to pick up, but it's worth the work, in my opinion. Recapitulation is another a fascinating thing when it comes to reading the Scripture. And this is simply the retelling of the same events, uh, but you do it from a different perspective, and you do it for a different purpose. There's an old Jewish saying that says uh, that repetition is the mother of all wisdom. And so it wouldn't surprise us if we would see that the Hebrew writers repeated things a lot, not because they forgot what they talked about or because they thought their audience was dumb. It was just a way that they were saying, don't forget this, here it comes again. So Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are recapitulations. Genesis 1 is all of creation. Genesis 2 focuses just on the sixth day. We read in Genesis 41 that the reason a dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God. If you read the book of Daniel, which has some unusual imagery once again, Daniel 2 looks at the empires of the world from a human perspective in that people think they're valuable and they're worthy, and so it's described with precious metals. Well, then you get to Daniel 7, and now you're looking at empires from God's perspective, and now they're grotesque beasts. So he's telling the same thing twice from two different perspectives. The four Gospels are all recapitulations. Matthew, Jesus is the complete fulfillment of the Old Testament. In Mark, Jesus was a servant. So Mark gives no genealogy, by the way, because slaves and servants had no genealogy. Luke traces a genealogy back to Adam because Jesus is the son of man. And John goes all the way back to before creation because Jesus is God. So they're all the same story, but they're coming at it from a different angle to highlight something different, uh, not only that we benefit from, but that the original audience understood they were having a different focus each time. The book of Revelation is a fascinating one. It is full of recapitulation. So, for example, in Revelation 6, the stars fall to the earth, at least a lot of them, and that would destroy the earth. It's the great day of the wrath of God's judgment. That's Revelation 6. Revelation 11, the seventh trumpet, there's your seven, ushers in the end of the world again. In Revelation 16, the seventh angel's bowl of judgment ends the world again. In Revelation 19, the divine warrior's sword wipes out all over the world and ends the world again. 
In Revelation 20, Satan is kept from deceiving the nations, which seems odd because he was thrown into the lake of fire in the previous chapter. But then at the end of the chapter, evil is wiped out again. And then in Revelation 21, evil is thrown into the lake of fire again. The writer's not confused. Just Revelation is not meant to be read linearly, right? It's meant to be read as recapitulation. The writer is telling the same thing over and over again. Like, don't forget this. It's going to work out like this. Don't forget this. By the way, this, see this? And it keeps coming back to the same thing. There is hope in the midst of all these tribulation. God wins in the end. So if you're a follower of Jesus, stand firm. I didn't have time to get into the number 1,000 which is all over Revelation. We can talk about that one later as well. All right, ways to approach Bible study. There's a ton. I'm not gonna go through the notes that I've given you here in this handout. Um, just know my recommendation is know the big picture of the Bible. If you're going to study a book, read background into why the book was written, who it was written to, what are significant themes, what city was it in, because that can matter because some of the language can be influenced by that. And then you begin to narrow it down. What's this paragraph focus on? So then what's this verse? If you start with a verse, make sure you're always going, huh, that's an interesting verse. What paragraph does it occur in? What chapter is it in? What book is it in? Hey, it's in the Bible. Right, constantly that ebb and flow of big picture and small picture working together. I have recommendations here in my notes about different ways to go about that, and I have a lot of resources that I think may be helpful for you. I'm gonna talk just a little bit about translations. If you're ready for that first one, Anna, there is a translation spectrum, and if you go online and Google this, you can find lots of information. On the left, you see very literal translations. On the right, you're gonna see what's free translation or a paraphrase. The message would be a classic example of a version of the Bible that is meant to be read as a paraphrase. Uh, and actually, the guy who wrote it said it ought to be read as a commentary, not as a primary source. The language is gonna be a lot more casual as you might expect. I'm gonna show you an example from 2 Peter. And this is from a website called Bible Gateway that lets you put different translations side by side so you can just see what's happening. So on the left, we have New International Version. The middle is King James. The right is the message. I'm going to go down to, if you look in the middle, verse 16, just to see how this ends. Actually, let's start on the left with the NIV. He writes the same way in all his letters. This is Paul speaking to them in these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. The one from King James reads, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Um, King James is one of the hardest to read. It's actually uh, Shakespearean language, which is why it's hard to read. And then the message. See if I can find, because they run verses together. Some things Paul writes are difficult to understand. Irresponsible people who don't know what they're talking about twist them in every which way. They do it to the rest of the scriptures too, destroying themselves as they do it. Now, they're all giving you the same message. You might have found one of those easier to digest and understand than the other. I recommend using side-by-side -side versions like this. One other example, just how Genesis starts differently with three different versions. 
Young's literal translation starts, in the beginning of God's preparing the heavens and the earth, the earth hath existed waste and void, and darkness is on the face of the deep, and the spirit of God fluttering on the face of the waters, and God saith, let light be, and light is. King James, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. The message, first this, God created the heavens and earth, all you see, all you don't see. Earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. God's spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss, and God spoke, light, and light appeared. God saw that light was good and separated light from dark. God named the light day, he named the dark night, it was evening, it was morning, day one. They're all telling you the same thing, right? You probably found one of those more accessible, or you might have found one created more of a sense of awe in you as you read it. It's not that they're competing versions of Scripture, though some are better than others. Think of using them in conjunction. It can be very helpful uh, just in helping you understand difficult passages. I think I've mentioned before the version I use from Bible Gateway that I like the most is one called The Voice. It tends to combine all of these different perspectives or recapitulations, if you want to call them that, in a way that I think best captures both the literal sense and um, the big picture sense. It's my personal preference. It doesn't mean you have to agree with me. And then here's my final thought about reading Scripture, and that is I really believe Scripture is meant to be read in community. Uh, Originally, if you go back to the Old Testament, People would have gone to the temple. You would have had your priests who were studying, but they would have been studying together. They would have been studying under the tutelage of someone else. There would have been a rabbi who was teaching. There was questions and answers. There was a real give and take. And then during the week, all the people would come to the temple, and that's when they all studied Scripture together. Not everybody took a scroll home. By the time you start to move into the New Testament, the churches are getting together. The Bereans are all searching the scripture, right? When people are going to speak, they're all talking about it. As the letters of the New Testament were circulated around, they would go to a church, they would read the letter in front of the church, they wrestled with scripture in community. By the time you get to the printing press, the printing press was wonderful in that suddenly now the Bible could be available to everyone, at least over time. That wasn't the case before. If there was a downside to the printing press, it's now people could just stay at home or all by themselves try to figure out Scripture on their own. And I just don't think that's the way that God intends for us to approach his word. I believe he intends for us to approach it in community. That can include a couple things. One is, and you'll see recommendations here, there's 2,000 years of church history that are part of our community. There's a cloud of witnesses that have wrestled with Scripture and have been inspired by the Holy Spirit to understand what things mean. So as you are studying, go back into history and find out what has God been inspiring in his people in terms of their understanding about his word for 2,000 years. I have a collection of books in my office that are uh, compilations of what the early church fathers had to say about all of scripture. It's often part of what I read to prepare for this because I want to go back and find out uh, someone in 150 AD, what did they think about this particular passage in 1 Peter? They're a little closer to the source than I was. They're a little hard to read at times, I'll be honest, because their language is weird. But 
this book gives me oversight of all the stuff that has survived, and I can pick up a book off my shelf, and I can go, in essence, study with the early church fathers. That's amazing. Because of the internet, you can too. You don't have to have a book and paper library to do something like that. So first of all, go into history and study what has been happening throughout history. The second is um, read and study globally. So if part of the community is deep, and by that I mean history, the other part of our community is wide, and by that I mean across denominations around the world. Uh, one of the fascinating things about one of the books I recommend in here called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. How many times have I said that? Someone should ring a bell every time I say that. I should get money from them. They were, they were missionaries in an area of the world in which the cultures are in some ways still very similar to first century cultures. And just reading how they uh, teach scripture and how their understanding of certain passages was just opened by being in a different place in the world was fascinating to me. Not that, that, it didn't mean they were wrong about the message of the gospel, just there were aspects of different stories and situations that suddenly opened up, now it makes sense. I couldn't have figured it out living here in Traverse City, Michigan, because it's just a different way of living. But suddenly when I'm around the world and I'm different places and I'm hearing how God's people are applying or understanding different aspects of it, it can be really eye-opening. So I would encourage uh, studying community in this church, but then also when you study on your own, go back into history, go around the world, and find out what God's people are doing with God's word. So like I said, um, today is more of a teaching day. I don't have an altar call at the end. What I want to encourage you to do is be faithful students of scripture. I will do my best to be faithful and rightly handle God's word. Um, I take that very seriously. But the Bible is clear, like I said before, it's not just on me, it's on all of us. Because we are a community that wrestles with scripture together and understands scripture together. So those of you who come to Message Plus know that's a really cool opportunity to do that actually. Um, as you're going to Scott's class and going through the Bible project, you're talking about it, you're doing this as a group. Um, take advantage of those opportunities. I believe God uses his people to, uh, I'll go back to recapitulate. Uh, we see things sometimes that just isn't easily seen by others. We will also practice that in Message Plus uh, if you choose to join us today. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.